Lord, thank you for your word. May we hear it now, grow in faith and in obedience. Amen. I was speaking to our youth group actually a couple months ago, and I asked them this question. I said, which one is harder to do? Mourn with those who mourn or rejoice with those who rejoice? Let me tell you, I, I have to admit, and I don't like to admit this, but I would say that it is far easier for me to mourn with those who are mourning than it is to rejoice with those who are rejoicing if what they are rejoicing in is something that I wanted for myself but didn't get. I've spoken to a number of ladies, young ladies, who desired to be married and they haven't yet had the opportunity. And every time a wedding comes around and they're asked to be in the wedding as a bridesmaid, they're trying to rejoice with someone who has something they really want. And they've told me how hard that is. For pastors, we're, we're certainly not above this. At least I'm not above this. Maybe others are. When a close friend and seminary classmate of mine announces yet another book that he's written, do I rejoice? Sure. But do I have that aching thought? Why haven't I written anything yet? And then I blame the congregation. Anyway, um, we think, but I want that, Lord. I want to do that. I want what he has. Want, desire, and sometimes what is a want or a desire, we f it feels like it's a need. We need it. So finally, we have come to the last of the Ten Commandments. I know it has been a while since we last covered one of the commandments, at least six weeks or more than that. Uh, we, start, we did an Advent series in between, but I really needed to finish this series and not start at the end of a series in the new church. Okay, I thought that would be bad. And I didn't want to leave it at only nine commandments, and then you would think that I'm leaving parts of Scripture out. So we've come to the last of the Ten Commandments. I want you to think back to the previous nine commandments. They have been challenging for those that have been with us. How have they been challenging? Well, the perfect law of God is incisive in its ability to see through my pretensions, isn't it? It's no wonder that the author of the book of Hebrews says about the word of God that it is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword. The commandments of God, they cut to the heart. They get to the center of our issues. The law, beloved, demands and the law, beloved, condemns. Like a mirror, it can show you all that is wrong with you. And there is a lot, not just with you, with me. But if you remember how we started out months ago, you know what a mirror doesn't do and cannot do. It can't reach out and fix your hair or wash your face. A mirror can just tell you that that's what you need to do. Wash your face, brush your hair. The Tenth Commandment is the last, both with regard to the whole Decalogue, yet it is also the last of what we call the second set, the 
The first four commandments had to do with our relationship with God. The second six or the last six have to do with our relationship with other human beings. The way Jesus divides it, remember, is love God and love your neighbor. This 10th commandment is last in both ways. It has to do with our relationship with God. It also has to do with our relationship with our neighbors, as all of the commandments really have to do with both. I'm convinced that order matters here in the Ten Commandments. Why is this the last commandment? I think we're going to find out as we open up the Scriptures together. How does it relate to the other commandments? This is important. Open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, and we're going to look just at verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 17. Let's see what we find here. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Amen? Don't amen too quickly if you're breaking this. I don't know. Here's some basic observations and then we're going to get to four main points and you can see those points in your bulletin or at least there's blanks there for you to fill in but here's some basic observations about this passage or this text here this command has to do with our desires take a look there that word there translated covet in the original hebrew actually just means desire and some english translations actually translate it that way they'll say something like set your desire upon do not set your desire upon One author used the language as he was translating it a little differently. He said, long for, let that be the translation. You shall not long for your neighbor's house, wife, etc. Something else we see here, just again as an initial observation, the Lord here in this passage has used examples that that culture and that context would have understood. He uses agrarian examples uh, because they were an agrarian society. Servants, animals to work the fields. But notice that at the end of that verse, he adds this, anything that belongs to your neighbor that is your neighbor's. Right? He wants to make sure that we understand how far-reaching this commandment is. Now look, we cannot say to ourselves today, and maybe some of you are saying this already, great, I have never wanted my neighbor's donkey. I must be okay. I have never, ever coveted anybody's ox. Okay, or you know what? Or they're servants. Okay, today we might say something like, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, car, lawn, salary, career, hobbies. Who knows? One person I read made the interesting observation that no one seems to covet other people's children. I'm not sure about that, I, I don't know, but. Another question that comes up while we're thinking about this commandment. How would we know if someone has broken this commandment? Certainly desires can turn into actions, but they don't always. In other words, this appears to call for self-reflection. This commandment is built in here so that we will reflect on ourselves, on our own hearts. It is something that certainly God will know but others may not. It may be easy to hide a covetous heart, but certainly not from the Lord. 
So here's our first point. What we have in the 10th commandment is what I call, and you can fill in the blanks here, number one, the no escape clause. The no escape clause. What do I mean? Well, you know the story of the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, of course, understanding what was going on inside of this rich young ruler's mind and heart, he responds with law, doesn't he? Jesus says to this guy, he says, well, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, okay, fulfill the commandments. The guy says, which ones? As though it would matter, right? Would it really matter which ones? All of them. Jesus gives examples to the young man. And and the young man says, I've kept them. I've kept them all. In some accounts, in, in some of the Gospels, he says, I've kept them since my youth, claiming that he has fulfilled the standard. He has lived up to the standard of God's perfect law. And so he says, what more do I still lack? Now, here's the thing. Either this man has a higher view of himself than he should have, or he has a far lower view of the law of God than he should have. Probably a little bit of both, more likely a lot of both. He doesn't get it. Beloved, as we've been exploring the commandments of God, something has become, I hope for you, has become clear for me. We have not kept the commandments. No fallen human being has no fallen human being can when we dig into the fullness of what these commandments mean when we see how jesus interprets the law for example in the sermon on the mount we realize there is a lot more to these commandments than meets the eye a lot more than is is required than a, a superficial adherence some sort of an external adherence to these things I can't just say, I never murdered. Have you hated? I can't say, well, I've never committed adultery. Have you lusted? Some of you know the Bill of Rights of the United States Constitution. You should. It's a good thing. And maybe you know the Tenth Amendment. It basically says this. Whatever isn't addressed thus far is part of the federal government's privilege and responsibility. That's a state issue. That goes back to the states. In a sense, it is a catch-all to whatever is left and not articulated. That goes back to the states. Well, I think the 10th commandment is similar as a catch-all. It is a final commandment that says this, and the rich young ruler should have known. And this is what Jesus wanted him to see. If you think you've been able to live up to everything that has been called for so far in the commands, remember this. It isn't only external behavior or actions, but your heart that counts. It isn't only your actions, but your desires that God requires. Some believe this is a summary of the previous five commandments but set internally instead of externally? I think there's some truth there. The word translated covet, as I said, is a word that simply means desire. And in the account in Deuteronomy, another word is used instead, a word that means crave. Do not crave what belongs to someone else. And yet we all do it. 
What's the saying? The grass is always greener on the other side because we're always looking at other people's lawns. (laughs) That's the problem. We're always comparing, aren't we? This is a fitting bookend to go along with the first commandment, which said, you shall have no other gods before me. As this commandment says, no other gods, not even your own desires, take precedence over the living God. Your desires, beloved, my desires, must be captive to God for him to be our God. This commandment calls us not to ask what we've done, but what we've thought. Not who we've hurt, but who we've wanted to hurt. It calls us to consider not only our relationships with others, but our thoughts about others, including whether they are worthy of what they have, as though we get to be the judge of that. It is a commandment that makes the heart the key issue. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. If I have ever looked at what someone else has and said, I want that for myself, I've broken all of God's law. And I have. The Tenth Commandment is a no-escape clause for those who perhaps, like the rich young ruler, still believe that they've been able to live according to the law of God. They haven't. But there's more here, isn't there? Here's our second point, and we've already articulated it. It's about the heart, but we need to emphasize it. It's about the heart. It is about desiring something that belongs to someone else, and it relates very closely to the word envy, to the thought of envy. I mentioned earlier that at times I envy my former classmates who have done the things I wish I could do. Often I envy what they have, their positions, their professorships, their author status. My kids are always coveting other families' use of electronics. But they let their kids play, well, I'm not them. And you're not their kid and whatever else. Of course, I think I let them play too much anyway. Our hearts are complex, beloved, aren't they? As a matter of fact, we know that Jesus tells us that all of our sins really come out of the heart. It isn't what goes inside into a man, but what comes out of his heart that makes him unclean. So what do we mean, then, that coveting is about desiring something that belongs to someone else? What is going on inside of us that's the real issue? First, beloved, we are very focused on our own gratification, aren't we? We want to please ourselves, find our own comfort, find things that make us happy and comfortable and satisfied. And the problem is all of those things are always changing. I'm sure you've heard that uh, the, most, uh, the, the wealthiest man alive at the time, John Rockefeller, was asked how much money is enough. And of course his response, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. But beloved, that's always the case with us. Anytime one desire is filled, a new one replaces it. Just a little bit more. Even if part of a desire is filled, we want more of that thing and more of it so that we can have more and more and more comfort or whatever. Our desires so often control us. There's always something yet to be gained. And someone else usually has it. 
So second, in, in focusing on our own gratification, often we're looking around at what everyone else has, and we think to ourselves, why do they have such a great life? And why don't I? We compare. In other words, we focus on ourselves and we're discontent. We're not satisfied. So we look at others and we assume that they are, or, and I think this one is maybe worse, we assume we would be if we had what they have, even if they're not satisfied. You know, beloved, I think that social media has really helped in this area, don't you think? It's made it a lot easier to not covet. No, that's different notes. I think that it's increased the sin of covetousness in so many ways. We, we all get to see everybody else's uh, good parts, the desirable parts of their lives, not the painful parts usually. We get to see their trips, their happy families, their, their perfect marriages. But is it real? Or is it a lie? And when we're coveting it, what are we really coveting? I can't tell you how many times I have seen a post from a wife on something like Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is about her perfect husband and how great he is only days after meeting with me to tell me that their marriages are falling apart. They're lies, beloved. Don't believe them. And then we watch this stuff and we think it's all real and it gets us to think that they have no trouble, but we do. And then our desire turns to what they have and what we want and envy and covetousness fills. What's at the heart of covetousness? Not only are our eyes on our neighbors for wrong purposes, but our eyes, and I think this is the key, are off of God, the giver of all good things. At the heart of covetousness is a lack of trust in the goodness of our sovereign God. It's about the heart, a heart of discontentment and dissatisfaction with God. In fact, in some ways, we must say that covetousness is a heart of unbelief. It is a lack of faith in the God of the Bible, a lack of trust that he is good, or at least a lack of trust that he is good toward me. Coveting is living for today, allowing the circumstances to dictate our joy. Faith, beloved, is the opposite. Faith looks up to God and forward to God's promises. Faith can look beyond the current circumstances. It can stop craving unrighteously what is someone else's and believe God that he has something good in store for them as their heavenly father or that he's preventing harm to them. And that today's moment is not a mistake nor an oversight, but part of his fatherly provision. As some would say, it's Friday, but Sunday's a coming. Have you guys heard that before? Didn't the cross prove this? It's Friday, Jesus is hanging on the cross, he is dying, he is buried, but Sunday's a coming. There will be a resurrection and nothing can stop it. Michael Horton writes, at the bottom, this final commandment calls us to the conviction that God is good and that even our suffering or lack serves an ultimately benevolent purpose. Amen. See, though this commandment is about our relationship with our neighbors, it is fundamentally about our relationship with God. 
It fundamentally commands that we find our satisfaction in God and nothing more because he is enough. Do you believe that? The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 147, asks it this way, what are the duties required in the 10th commandment? Now listen to the answer. The duties required in the 10th commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections touching him, our neighbor, tend unto and further all that good which is his. In other words, I'll try it in today's English. It calls us to total satisfaction in what we have and happiness toward our neighbors for what they have. And I'll be honest, when I think about those two prongs, this law crushes me because I'm not there. Not all desire is bad. Desire to honor the Lord, desire to serve Christ, desire to bless others, desire that comes out of love, it's good. But so often our desires become inordinate. They become controlling. They become our gods and we're enslaved to them more and more and more. Martin Luther spoke of what happened at the fall as our hearts being turned inward. And this commandment, beloved, calls us to have hearts that are turned outward. Turned outward. There's more. Here's our third point. You can add this to your notes. Coveting includes contempt for others. Coveting includes contempt for others. And I think we need to be honest about this. Clearly, this commandment is relational. It's one of the second table laws. It has to do with our relationship with our neighbors, even though it's about our hearts. Think about a society that is full of covetousness. If a society is full of covetousness, it will be a, a society full of division. That's what we see. Romans 13, 9-10, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So with that in mind, amen, I agree. So with that in mind, coveting, what our neighbors have is unloving toward them. Don't forget. It is a way of wronging the neighbor even if they never find out. It often is accompanied by dishonoring the person that we are coveting from in our minds. One author put it this way. He says, we mentally treat that person as insignificant. Not respecting the fact that the thing we desire actually belongs to him or her. He goes on to add this important point. He says this may be the most important moral issue raised by the command. The fundamental evil in coveting is not desire for the object, but contempt for the owner of the object. We devalue people when we're coveting from them. When I think of what my friends have that I don't have, almost immediately I also think about why they don't deserve it. I think of what I know about them. I label them in my head. I question their motives, their worthiness. I cause them to decrease so that I might increase. 
sad. Amen. And again and again. Think about King Ahab in 1 Kings 21. He wanted Naboth's vineyard. So he asked for it. He even offered money to get that vineyard. He wanted to turn it into his own personal vegetable garden for convenience sake because it was close to his palace. He didn't stop to think that this land had been given as an inheritance to Naboth's forefathers by the Lord himself. A vegetable garden is nice, but the inheritance as the people of God is far more valuable. But a coveting heart has contempt for the others, not love. Beloved, if we see what others have, we should be giving thanks that God has given it to that person for his purposes as their heavenly father. We don't. We just get jealous. Yet Jezebel, Ahab's wife, by the way, fulfilled her husband's covetous heart by having Naboth killed, and the vineyard then was taken. Coveting includes contempt for others, a belittling of those made in the image of God. So coveting is internal. It's about our desires even before they become actions. It includes what we think of ourselves too high, what we think of others too low, what we think of God He's not good to me, or he's done me wrong, or he's not enough for me. He can't be trusted. Doesn't that sound like a familiar refrain from the enemy? Remember how the serpent caused the woman to question God? He said, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. In some sense, beloved, the serpent wanted Eve to covet what God had, godness, divinity, authority. Our coveting is no different. It is an affront against the living God. It is idolatry, and we are the idols of our own worship. Here's our last point. This command points us again to Christ alone. So I want to ask you a question, take inventory. Think about all the commands we've been covering. Think about this particular catch-all command. And let me ask you, how is it looking for you? Have you lived up to the commands? I should put my hand down just in case someone thinks I'm saying I have. No, no. The law is demanding, isn't it? It's crushing. The perfection it requires is exacting. It is rigid. Beloved, there is no flexibility in the perfect law of God. And say, okay, that's good enough. You only lusted a few times. That's cool. Come on in. You're good. You only coveted a few people. Just the ox and not the donkey. Good. You come on in. The perfection it requires is exacting and rigid. And it tells me when I stand before the living God that I have failed. As Paul says, I have fallen short of the glory of God. Every time I think of the law and I preach about the law and I speak of the law, I feel like crying out with Paul at the end of Romans 7 when he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But the answer, beloved, the answer is stop looking at yourself. Paul says the answer is this, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? 
that needs to be a louder amen than that, friends. Stop looking at your own righteousness. Beloved, where I coveted, Jesus never did. Where I have fallen short, Jesus has lived up. Where I sinned, Jesus remained righteous. When I have a desire to be God, Jesus being God, Paul says, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and he did it for you and he did it for me. And when he knew that what he was about to face was something that would cause him profound suffering, he trusted the Father by saying, not my will, but yours be done. And here's the thing. The law demands and it command, condemns, excuse me, but the gospel, the good news is this. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow amen in other words the law says do this and live and the gospel chimes in and says jesus has already done it all his perfect righteousness is what we stand before the father with every command every jot and every tittle he has fulfilled perfectly all of the crushing weight of the law that we have been studying that i couldn't keep Jesus has kept perfectly. And the good news is this, by grace, through faith in him, our sins are imputed to him and his righteousness is given to us. Glory to God for this unfathomable exchange. And listen, beloved, it is in knowing all that we have in Christ freely that we can respond with thanksgiving empowered by the Spirit of God also freely given. It is only when we get these things, we understand that He has done it all from A to Z, and we trust in His work that we can then live in a way that actually honors Him, empowered by the Spirit given by Him. And so when the law comes with its demands, our Savior says, paid in full. And now that law, written on our hearts by the Spirit. We strive to fulfill, not to be saved, but because we are already saved and empowered and freed to live this way. We have a double grace. We're justified by the finished work of Christ and we're sanctified as well by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And so the law is no longer for Christians condemning us instead in christ it becomes our guide for living it tells us when we've fallen short and how to get back on and how to walk with him because he has done it all already we live in freedom purchased by a christ we pursue and have freely the heart of the issue is the heart and praise be to the lord who in christ takes out our hearts of stone 
and replaces them with hearts of flesh. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the law. Thank you for the perfect standard that tells us what is the holiness that God desires and reminds us that we have fallen short. It leads us directly to the only one that can save us. We can't save ourselves. We know it, Lord. We can't do it. We can't keep the law. We've broken it already. Even if we try today to start, we can't. But God, rich in mercy. Pray, Lord, that you would give us a deeper understanding of your grace and a greater thankfulness for all you've accomplished. And now by your Spirit, may we go forward living for the glory of God aligning ourselves with the law of God, grateful that we have the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.